I'm overjoyed today. I'm going to, and I, I mean that because we're starting our first week in a seven-week series on the doctrine of the church, the, the nature and the practices of the church, and what we're going to look at in these weeks ahead. I studied about 30 years ago in graduate school, and it literally changed my life. Not like it changed my life, like, oh, it changed my life. It literally changed what my career was going to be, what I would do for a living, who I could marry, and, and the person I did marry, how I, where I would live, uh, where financial security would possibly come from if there was anything. And it all started because of this series that I studied on the doctrine of the church. It's called Ecclesiology. The church is first mentioned in the Bible in the lips of Jesus in the context of, of towards the end of his ministry. It is absolutely a pivot point in the, the drama that takes place in the New Testament. Jesus has been doing miracles and doing multiple teachings, and he takes his disciples to the northern part of the uh, Sea of Galilee in a place called Caesarea of Philippi. And the, the place is significant because the context of what he says and how he says it makes all the difference in the world. He goes to this place, Caesarea Philippi, and he wants to know if his men understand who he is and why he's come. And Caesarea Philippi was able to bring a lot of the power of who he was into this context. Caesarea Philippi, it is the home of Pan worship, the worship of Pan, the God of desolate places. Pan is known for being frightening, scary. He is half man, half goat. That's where we get the word panic is from this, the root word of pan. It was a frightful place. It's this cave. Originally, it would, it would look like this back in those times, and, and, and now it's, right, the, the worship center has, has decayed, but it was a place of worship. It has this giant cave, and during various seasons of the year, the underground springs would, would vomit out of that mouth. It looks like a mouth. The cave looks like a, a mouth of some sort of monster. And a few times a year, the water would come rushing out of there, and they felt like that was the gate to the underworld, that Pan and other gods would live down there in the off-season. And, and because of that, it, it's this disgusting and debauchery, full of debauchery and, and hedonism forms of worship that would take place right there. It was a creepy place. It had a nickname. It was the gates of hell. And so in, in the context of, of being in, on location in the gates of hell, at the gates of hell, standing behind them, I mean, I would imagine the disciples were pretty creeped out about this. I know they were believers in Yahweh God, but still. When I go to like a graveyard at night, I get pretty creeped out. There's no reason, but it doesn't matter, does it? So, so it, it's in this that Jesus says, okay, You've been following me for more than two years now. Who am I? So it says in Matthew chapter 16, and when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah and, or one of the prophets. And he said, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said this, you are the Christ. That word means Messiah, the promised one. You are the promised one, the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, the next sentence is critical to our understanding of what the Christian life is all about. He says this, Jesus, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And with that, I would imagine the men are stunned. They gasp. They gulp. They fear fainting because it's true. It's true. He is the Messiah. He just said it. You're right. I'm the one we've all been waiting for. I'm the fulfillment of all those promises. And then he says, there's, there's coming this church. And in this, in this promise of the church, he said, there's power and authority. The gates of hell will not prevail against. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. Don't you worry about this red light district pagan ritual site. It has nothing on the power of the church. And then he also says the kingdom, uh, the keys to the kingdom of heaven will be given to the church as well. Here's what he's saying. The church, when she is the church, it is God's people on the power of God's spirit doing God's will. And there's nothing that can stop the church. It has the, the authority of God given to us by Jesus Christ. And evil itself will surrender. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church has eternal significance. The church has eternal consequences. The closer you look at this passage and the passages in the Bible, the greater your grasp of understanding of who the church is and where she should find her place in your heart and soul. Just look what it, it says, uh, it's the, the, the word church itself, ecclesia, it means called out ones. It's not a building. The church is not a building. The church is a group of people. In, in a secular context, they would know that word because it would, you were called out to vote. There's a phrase that's found in ancient literature. They are ecclesia to, to vote. The governor called them out. This is no governor. This is Jesus Christ saying, you are the called out ones for this purpose. You are the church. We are the church. The passage says, upon this church, upon this rock, I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus. The church is God's church. And to be a member of this church, yeah, there's a fee. There's a cost for being the church. It is the cost of the very own blood of the Son of God. Look how it's in, in Acts chapter 20. It says, keep, he's talking to the elders of a church. He says, so keep watch over yourselves and over the flock, over which the Holy Spirit has made you the overseers. Over the, he's made you the elders. Shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own Son. The blood of his own son. You can get some friend of yours, gives you a free pass or pays the tuition of some fancy country club. Good for you. That's not what we're talking about here. It's different in degree and in kind. The church was bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. That alone should cause us to realize that the church is of infinite expense, of unparalleled value in the mind and the heart of God. Jesus calls the church his bride. That's how he thinks of the church. He says, she's my bride. Now, I'll tell you, the goal of, of today's learning time is, it's, I want to say it's nothing more than, but it's everything. It's, it's to change your values when it comes to when we talk about church. It, it's to change your perspective on how you view or prioritize it. Because in in the heart of God, there is nothing more valuable 
on planet Earth than his church. There is nothing more exceptional in, in the heart of God than his bride. God cherishes the bride of Jesus Christ like nothing else. Jesus Christ has promised that he'll return. Why? To get his bride. He's coming back to get his bride. He's coming back to get his church. That's us. If we could change the way we view the church, most of its applications just fall as a consequence of what it means to love something first and foremost. The goal is to grasp this truth. The more you read and the more you study the doctrine of the church, the more you're going to fall in love with her. The more likely you are to change your values and the more likely you are to change your conduct and perspective on life. The, more you, the, the greater you love God, the greater you're going to love his church because he loves his church. And if you love him, you'll love his bride. Cherish the bride of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? Again, if you change your whole value system, it is so subtle how your love for the bride will just show up. It just kind of happens because you've changed, you've been renewed in your mind. For example, just a simple phrase, upon this rock I will build my church, my church. It's a possessive pronoun that belongs to Jesus. The, the, the church is not an it. It's a her. You watch these pronouns. And some, when, when regular people, lay people, for example, will say my church or our church, that's, I think that's fine. You know, it's, it's slang in many respects. There is a sense where this is your church. But sometimes it changes a little bit. You might have experienced this. When the leaders of a church, or especially the founders of a church, will say my church, you sometimes... Sometimes it can mean like, no, 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 this is my church. We started it. We formed it. We founded it. This is our little project. This is our club. And it's not. There are other clubs. <laughs> this is the church. This is the bride of Christ. And in our leadership meetings behind closed doors, we don't talk about grace like, like it. It's she. It's her. It's his. We'll say what, and, and our job description is, is you know, I, I, I will build my church. It's like, we, we don't say that. Our job is to seek the groom and what his will is for this congregation. And we, we've had arguments in, in staff. We've even had to let some pastors go because of this issue. We can't take grace anywhere we want her to go. That's not up to us. She doesn't belong to us. So our job is to consult the groom and feel like we have to understand what his will is for this congregation because our job as leaders is to care for her and, and to, to present her holy and spotless without blame or wrinkle to the groom. Jesus says, I'll lend you my bride. And the leadership says, I'll do the best I can to make her everything you want her to be. So sometimes simple pronouns, they just find their way in your vocabulary if you understand who the church is and how much God values her. Look at the power. Look at the power of the church. The church will triumph. The church is the means of the future conquest. Okay? I mean, the church is the queen, but she's a war queen. 
She carries a sword. She will be running point as we charge the gates of hell, and she will light those gates on fire, and she will work the ram and crash that down because this is a commission from God. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. What does that tell you about the nature of the church? She plays offense. She's going after She's bringing the sovereign rule of, of God and his love into creation. It's, it's not a passive thing where we sit back and we wait for Jesus to come back. It's not a retreat. It's charging the gates. The holy people of God are called out to show the world, the created things, the things seen and unseen, that God is sovereign over his creation. God is loving. God is king. That's the purpose of the church. The church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ has the greatest value. It has the greatest power of anything on this planet. So when we look and we talk about the church, we think these things about her. How does it apply to your everyday life? How does what's happening in the Bible work its way into kind of the practical week to week or whatever it might be? I know that that's a, we need some work on that and we're going to spend some time on that. One of the first things you need to understand when we talk about the church is that there's kind of two reference points, two, two ways of expressing the church. One is the universal church. You'll see this in, in literature. And the idea there, and when you read it, is that the universal church is a spiritual entity that is including every man, woman, and child that has trusted Jesus Christ in the power of his death and his resurrection. Every color, every race, every nationality, every expression of human existence doesn't matter denominations or, or uh, congregations. It's the fundamentals of the faith. What's orthodox belief sometimes it's called or the fundamentals of the faith. And that's why creeds in a, multiple different congregations and, and denominations will have a creed that says something like, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The word Catholic there means universal. We believe in this one universal church that speaks all these languages and expresses itself in so many different ways. So philosophically, this is a, a word on purpose, there's a universal church and then there is a particular church. There is a particular church, the church particular. And that means its expression, the universal invisible, right, is expressed in a thing, in a thing that's, that's touchable. It is the visible church, that's this congregation and congregations all over the world. The weekly meeting of, of bringing the saints together, the called out ones, are a, a, a reality that's, that's experienced, that's visualized and experienced, taste, touch, sight, those sorts of things. And it's been that way from the very beginning. The very beginning of the church, the mission of the church was to be a local expression of a universal reality that was taking place, and the church was practicing ordinances together. Sometimes they're called sacraments. These are spiritual things that only the church does. They're involved in Bible teaching. They're involved in prayer, corporate worship, the discipleship of, of the people that is becoming like Christ in all of life. That happens in the context of the local church. Pentecost, the birthday of the church, some will call that. Pentecost is when it all started. Uh, Pentecost is, is a Jewish, actually it's a Jewish feast and it is the Feast of First Fruits. And so all those years, Pentecost was leading up to the fulfillment of what does that mean? First fruits of salvation, Spirit of God, dwelling our souls, indwelling our souls. And on that Pentecost, 
Peter gave this amazing sermon that convicted those that were listening. It was a survey of how God was working throughout the eras and epochs and covenants and dispensations, and then it culminates in Jesus Christ, who they crucified and was raised again. And they, and, and they said, well, what, do, what do we do now? At the end of the sermon, everybody's like, how do I apply this? And he says, repent and be baptized. Repent of everything that you thought was true about Jesus and believe what has been proven to be true about Jesus and be baptized. To be, and that means to be called out ones. And in this repentance and baptism, this was the ritual that got them involved in the local church. Again, from its birthday at Pentecost, they found themselves in local expressions of a universal reality. And when they spread out after Pentecost, they came into Jerusalem for that, they went and they, in, they started local congregations. That's the model that's in the, the New Testament. It's throughout the book of Acts. It is everywhere all the time. Uh, that's how it is in church history, that people became followers of Jesus Christ. They repented. They were baptized. They were joining congregations, local expressions of a universal bride of Jesus Christ. Only the recent times, I'd say only the last few decades, has there ever been an expression that sounds like this, oh, I'm a growing Christian, I just don't go to church. Or I'm a growing Christian, yeah, I'm surrendered to the Lord, but you know, I, I'm not really all that involved in church. I'm not really even a member anywhere. That, that is a, first of all, it, it is, it's nonsense. You can't do that. That's a conflict with what the Bible says, to be clear, and it's a conflict in, in just basic logic. How can you say you're part of the universal church without ever expressing that in a local way, in a real way? Individualism is a worldview that especially our country, but modern culture is addicted to this individualism where I just have this special thing. It's just between the two of us, and I don't need to be involved in local expressions of that. It's not even possible. And Martin Luther said, Without, apart from the church, salvation is impossible. Apart from the church, salvation is impossible. And what Luther was saying there, he's not suggesting that the church is the pr providing salvation or it's the means of salvation. It would, there's a translation gap here, it would, if he were to say that today, he would say, there's no discipleship. Without the church, there's no discipleship. You cannot become like Christ in all of life, independent of the local church. It's foreign to the Bible. It's foreign to church history. It's, it's foreign to, to logic and reason. And so <laughs> it's just not possible. And yet it's common today. How do you cherish the bride of Jesus Christ? How do you cherish this idea of the bride of Christ is put her here for this special purpose with all this power and significance? Well, I would say, for example, uh, so many of you do ministry, right, everywhere, because I'm just the pastor. You guys are the ministers. And in the context of ministry, you should, one of the ways you could apply the doctrine of the church and cherish the bride of Christ is when a person starts to understand who they are in Jesus Christ and they do have an experience of repentance you need to get them involved in a local congregation because that's, that's what would be expressed. You need to introduce them to a local expression of, of the body of Christ. Just, having, just going to a Bible study with them, that's a good thing, but it's not, it's not the church. Finding a, a huddle of people, a fellowship to get connected with, that's a good thing, but it's not the church. As, as a person of... of of influence on them, your, 
you're to get them involved soon in a congregation that would serve them well and they could serve there. The parachurch is not the church. The parachurch is not the church by their own definition. Okay, let's think about this. Para, that means, para means next, it literally means next to, next to the church. So we, so we, have, uh, we have paramedics. They are next to the medical profession. So I'm sorry, the, medicine, the medical guys can't show right, right now, so I'll be a paramedic and do the best I can to serve medicine to help you. A paralegal says, oh, the legal guys can't be here. I'm going to do the best I can to serve the legals to help you the best way I can. I'll serve you. I'm not the legal person. I'm a paralegal. I'm not the medic. I'm a paramedic. The, church, the parachurch says, no, no, no. I'm not, gonna, I'm not the church. I'm just here to serve the church to help you. I, I stand next to the bride of Christ. Wait a minute. The person who stands next to the bride of Christ. They're a bridesmaid. A parachurch is a bridesmaid. They stand next to to serve the bride. They know who they are, and they know who they're not. And many very successful parachurch ministries are successful because they know where they fit in in this doctrine of the church. Uh, so many of you are familiar with Campus Crusade for Christ, and I think it's called Crew Now. But their early history was was balancing on this razor's edge right here on what the doctrine of the church is. Bill Bright, their founder, was uh, overwhelmed with most of the leadership, was insistent that crew become, start, begin serving the ordinances, right? Do baptism and communion and other things, and then ultimately become a denomination because they felt like that's what the, the American church needed the most is a new denomination. And Bill Bright said, I will have nothing to do with that. We are not a church. We are a bridesmaid. We, and this was extremely risky and very expensive because, the, because crew was so young back then and doesn't, didn't have the influence and the wealth it has now. But Bill Bright said, no, we will be a bridesmaid. We will stand next to. We need to help those local congregations do things they can't do well and serve them in college ministry and missions and so on. And you know what? I think, I mean, God is blessed Campus Crusade for Christ. Crew, I think, is where they are today because Bill Bright knew the doctrine of the church and he wanted, he wanted to cherish the bride of Jesus Christ by standing next to her, by standing next to her. He knew he was not the church. Bible studies are not the church. Our Sunday school classes are not the church. Our youth ministry is not the church. The church gathers together to enjoy a deeper sense of fellowship and connection often accompanied by ordinances, spiritual events that we can't explain or hopefully don't even try to understand. The church is a mess. I know. You're thinking, oh, we, we taught this exalted view of the church. That's true. But when we get down to the here and now, sure, it kind of stinks. It's, it's filled with sinners. It is run by sinners. And so it's, really, it's easy to have an idealistic view of the church, and then you walk in the local church, and that's why people say, I don't need this. Well, that's too bad. That's, that, this is what God has chosen to use. One person said, the church is like Noah's Ark. The stench inside is unbearable. <laughs> Except when you consider the storm outside that you're surviving. Yeah, the stench inside here is unbearable. But this is a fact that God chose to use the church at this time 
to show all of the created world, the seen and the unseen, that He is the sovereign King over all of creation. He's chosen the church to have the power and the authority given from heaven to, to, to project the power of the love of God. Attitude is everything. Attitude about the church is everything. This, an unconditional, this is a great word, unconditional love towards the church because of who she is and who she belongs to. And you, you, let, you let the other things take a place all by themselves. Yes, it's full of sinners. It's run by sinners. They make crazy decisions. Yep, that's true. Still the church. A number of years ago, uh, we were visiting a group called Faith Comes Through Hearing. They're a parachurch organization. They work next to the church, uh, bringing uh, uh, dramatized Bibles, uh, you know, versions to all kinds of people all over the world. We love working with them, and we've had a lot in common with them. We have a lot of overlap, at, overlap. We have kind of mutual convictions, but I'll tell you, there was this one night that changed everything for me. As a matter of fact, it was at this banquet for Faith Comes Through Hearing that I, w I did, this hasn't happened to me very many times, but I was, it was though I was mugged by joy, and I couldn't do anything. I just put my head down and started crying. Here's what happened. It was at the Founders Banquet, and so it was the 40th anniversary, and the original older man that founded Faith Comes Through Hearing started just kind of reminiscing and telling stories, and it didn't seem like he had an outline to me. We were kind of going all over the place. And he told this one story, again, off the cuff, he just said, I remember in the early days, a vendor was coming in, and they had a huge ministry, they still do, but for recording sermons all, from all over the world, and they would send them out all over the world. I used them when I was uh, in high school or in college uh, just to hear sermons from everywhere. And, and, and so they were a provider of this. So a vendor came in who does recording ministry gizmos, right, uh, equipment, and said, you know what? I love working with Faith Comes Through Hearing. I don't like working with churches. Man, those churches, they take forever to make decisions. You know, uh, sometimes they don't pay on time. They're, I mean, so he's trying to flatter this founder by saying, you're so much better than working with the local church. And the founder said, stop talking. I love the church. And I don't have problems with her. And I don't want you talking ill of the church. And when he said that, I went, Wow, that's why I love you guys. But then he didn't stop. He kept going. He said the next week he was having a devotional time, and he said he had a vision, and the vision was from God, and God brought to him his bride. She was beautiful. She was stunning in this white dress, and he presents the bride, the church, to this founder, and he says this, who dares to raise the dress of my bride to see if she is unclean. You will always respect my bride. And that is when I put my head down and started crying. He kept going, I was done. That's a vision from God. That's how God views his bride. Whether she's clean or unclean, whether she's in a state of corruption or not, it's his. And we need to cherish the bride of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? What does that look like? I want you to look in a single sentence I'm about to put up on the screen. In a single sentence, I want you to see just the majesty 
of the church. I want you to see the power of this bride. I want you to see the supremacy of the church. I want, to see, I want you to see the importance of the mandate that we've been given by God the Father. One sentence. Let's see if we can drink it in. Yahweh, actually the passage says he, but he's referring to, it's a long sentence actually. Yahweh, Yahweh's intent was that now, during this time, now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, what is the manifold wisdom of God? Historically, throughout the Bible, that means the manifold wisdom of God is that God is sovereign to rule over all of creation. That's the whole point of Revelation, that God is sovereign to rule over all of creation. And so it is now the church's job to present this manifold wisdom of God, okay, should, that it should be made known. Made known to whom? Look, to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly realms. They're talking about spiritual beings now. God has said, during this period of time, I'm going to bring my presence to planet Earth through the local churches so that they can show not just creation, but the whole spiritual realm, all the angels, all the demons, that it is God who is sovereign and God who has a right to rule. And we show that in our choices to submit to him and to do his will. That's the mandate that we have that all the world might know. It's, 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 this mandate has been accumulating over all the years. He's always done this sort of thing. He shows up to places to show he has the right to rule. He did that through, during a means, a, a series of a, a, a dispensation with the patriarchs, Abraham and his descendants. And then he did it with Israel. He shows up in, the pres in presence, right? He brings his presence in the tabernacle and then the temple. And, and then, you know, the precipice of this, right, is is the climax of this is Jesus Christ comes. He brings his presence to mankind, right? His nickname is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what did he do when he was with us? He showed he had power over the dominions, right? He had power over demons. He had power over death. He has all this power. He has a right to rule all of creation. And he goes back to the throne and says, you guys, the church, you're in charge of this now. You are to show the manifold wisdom of God, that he has the, he's a sovereign king and he has a right to rule all of creation. You do this. So all of creation sees this, the seen and the unseen. That's where we are. That's who we are. So concrete applications to that exaltation of who we are, this is no club. This is this gift from God, this authority. The first, I would say, is just your attitude towards the bride. First and foremost, attitude towards the bride. This is God, the church is God's first love, right? And he called, look, there's a reason there's a metaphor. It's the bride of Jesus Christ because it's not, it shouldn't be hard for us to say, like for me, look, hey, my bride, Melinda, is my first love. She is first in front of my children or any child. She's in front of my career. She's in front of my personal health. I put a bumper sticker on her car to tell the world how many days I've been married to her. Okay, she's first. There have been times where she was second, and she knew that. And it was the wrong place to be, and we had conversations. I shouldn't be second. You're right. You're first. You want to love me? You're going to love her. The more you love me, the more you're going to love her. See how easy it translates? You want to love God? You have to love the church. You say you love God, you've got to be loving the church. It is, it is not, and first, it's the bride. It's, it's not a hobby. 
It's, it doesn't compete with your sports. It doesn't compete with anything else because it's over here by itself. It's first and foremost. The church. It's like nothing else. Cherish the church of Jesus Christ. I think another thing is when you even come on Sunday, great expectations. Have great expectations for God to show up here in a way that he won't show up in any other context for great things to happen. Don't miss out on opportunities for that. Look what it says in Hebrews. Let's think of ways that we can meet every week all the time to motivate one another in acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. But look, let's get together and encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. He's going to come back for his bride any time, the writer of Hebrews says. We got to, come on. We only have a few more days, weeks, months to love each other in a way that's expectant. And so this should be the primary purpose and, and value in your life, this gathering together. And in our experience, it's been, you know, especially when the kids were young, oh, we were coming to church. Oh, we were absolutely coming to church. And, and, you know, if you know people that are Jewish or in different backgrounds, the Sabbath starts the day before on sunset. And so we would, on Saturdays, we would gear down early. And in the summer months, when the sun was still out, the kids are all playing out in the front yards. Our kids are inside. We bathed them early. We played board games, just slow them down. When we prayed at Saturday night, we prayed for great things to happen at Grace Covenant Church, our expression of the bride of Christ. Our vocabulary, we, you don't use vocabulary like you have to go to church. You get to go to church. You find that church where you get to go there and go there. Our kids never had choice about church. <laughs> it's cold outside. It's raining outside. The Longhorns beat OU. I got it in there. I, freaking, it's, I just figured out how to get that in there. It got in there. So. And we would just, you know, children, they know if you're weak. And they'll look at you. And they'll, if, they, if you blink, they'll win. And we would just say, you don't have a choice on this. You can ride in the front seat or you can ride in the back seat. You have no freedom about whether we're going or not. We can go Jollyville Road or we can go the highway. You can choose that. But we're going to church. That's not an option. Okay. They try it twice. They'll never try it again. Congregations hold eternity in their hands. Congregations hold eternity in our hands. Expect great things when you come here. Expect great ministry to take place when you're here. When you're looking down the rows and you're looking at other people, pray for them. Maybe God's voice will whisper to you that you need to go talk to that person. Maybe you could take that person to lunch or get to know them. God believes in great things happening at Grace Covenant Church. Grace Covenant Church needs to believe that God's doing great things. Expect great things. Cherish the bride of Jesus Christ. She should be in a hierarchy that is different, that is off, that is up and by itself. It should show up in your expression of time. Again, clearing your schedule. Not so much how many hours, but the priority of not missing. It should show up in your, your use of talents. When you serve, you should first look for po possibilities of serving in the local church. And when you show up to serve in the local church, think about this. This is the bride of Jesus. Bring your best, not your leftovers. Right? If you're handing out bulletins, this is the happiest you are all week long. If you're teaching, this is where you invest your time. Whatever your expression of gifts are, this is where you get to serve. You get to serve in this eternal thing that, that Jesus is coming back for. This is where you get connected. This is where you get other people to get connected. If you have friends that are outside the church, find, help them find a church. 
Go to church with him. Bring him here, whatever it takes. In your giving, first and foremost, the local church and then other places. It's the local church because she is the bride of Jesus Christ. Over a decade ago, maybe close to two decades ago, our leadership said, look, the first 10% of all the elders and pastors, we're going to give here, of course. I mean, it's not limited to 10, that's for sure. But that, it just, it's a priority issue, and it changed. It changed everything, especially in our budget, because, it, because parachurch was over here. We treated bridesmaids like they were bridesmaids. We treated the bride like she deserved. We cherished the church. I mean, really quick, look, if the more you read and the more you study, the more you understand up here who the church is, and when she gets down here, she's going to change your life. The greater you love God, the greater you're going to love his bride. That's, there, that's just all there is to it. When I went to seminary, I didn't go to be a pastor of a Protestant church. That was not my intention. I wanted to be a well-informed layperson. I had some time off, and I was, had, some, uh, had some freedom that I wouldn't have for the rest of my life, and I knew that. And then I took this class. I took a class on the doctrine of the church. And then I had to meet with a bunch of counselors because I realized that, that there's this unmatched value of the church, and it rattled me. And I talked to them, and I said, here's some things that I can do, and I'm relatively healthy, and, and I would love to cherish the church in some way, the bride of Jesus Christ. And they said, well, I think you should be considering a, a pastor. I said, well, I've got big plans. And they said, well, how about that? They first or second? They're second. And so as a result of that, just trying to be an educated layperson, I end up going into the pastorate because of the value of the bride of Jesus Christ. And we moved here, and we, we you know, tried to start a church. We rang doorbells, and, and, and look. Look what happened. No, this isn't the church I started. The church I started died. It, like, it was ugly. It was a, like a slow-motion wreck with fire and everything. And when we were done with it, we were exhausted, broke, and we were lost. But, okay, wait, I would do it again. I would do it again. Because in that season of my life, with all that freedom, it would be the best expression of how a young man and a young woman could cherish the bride of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming back. Do you know why? He's coming to get his bride. And until that day, you and I are to live our lives to cherish her. That's how we live. Let's pray. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. Yep. According to his power that has worked within us. Yes. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we lift this up to you. I, Lord, if we need to repent on the way we've been treating your bride, let it be. Lord, if we need to adjust our values so that she is first in the created things, make it so. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us understand the love and the value the supremacy of this church, universal and local, that we might play our part. By loving her, we're loving you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.